0: John chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 28 through 37 this morning. In many ways, this is, this is a, an Advent type sermon. I'm really excited for it. It has kind of a heavy title. It's I'm calling it Jesus and our pain. Um, So let's read John 11. We'll read verses 28 through 37. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you have like a liturgy guide and we have the text there for you. So let's read uh, the word of God together and then pray and, and dive in. John 11:28. 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. And is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of God. Let's pray for his blessing as we study it together. Lord, we thank you for your word today. God, that we can hear from the living God. Lord, we have gathered not to hear the opinions or perspectives of humanity of any person today we have come to hear from the living God and Lord you know how to speak and to communicate and to make yourself clear and so so we 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 sit at your feet now and we open your word your word that is inerrant without any error in all that it says or teaches or declares your word that is sufficient God for us for our needs for our questions, for our doubts, for our confusion, for our consolation. Your word is sufficient, God. We thank you that your word is alive. We're not studying some ancient dead book, but by the power of your Holy Spirit who is with us now, your word is able to do powerful things, so Lord, where else would we go but to you, Jesus? You have the words of life. Would you open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things? Would you give us ears? to hear? Lord, would you help our hearts where we are we are struggling, where we are doubting, where we are grieving? Lord, would you help us to not only hear and believe, but to obey you? Would, would we be a church that is actually changed and transformed by your word today? And would our lives and our families and our neighborhoods and our community be different? Because we gather today around you, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is real and it deals with real things like pain and death and weeping. We thank you for this story that we have before us when your good friend was in the grave and, and you came and you came and you saw the suffering and you wept and you even did something about it, Jesus. Jesus. Lord, above anything else, would you help us, your church, to behold the person of Jesus today? Would we see Jesus for, for who you are in your, in your worth, in your might, in your majesty, and even in your humility as you took on flesh and as you wept and suffered with and for your people? Spirit of God, would you glorify Jesus? No other name, no other, would nothing else be on our lips today as we leave, but, but how good is our Jesus? That's right. We love you and we look to you now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you went to any person in any place at any point in human history, you would, you would find agreement on, on one fact. It doesn't, it wouldn't matter their religion. It wouldn't matter their life experiences. Every person throughout all history, no matter what their religion or perspective, they would recognize this fact that we live in a world that is filled with pain and ultimately death. Every person who has ever lived has been affected by pain. And every person until Jesus returns will personally face death. People have come up with all kinds of responses to, to cope with this pain. How do you think about death and, and how do we manage it? And what do we do about it? And this morning, it's on us as the church to ask, what, what does a Christian do with pain and death. What is the response to be of someone who, who is seeking to follow Jesus? You know, some, some Christians may take on this attitude of kind of a, a triumphalism because we know we're going to rise again. And, and so, so hey, don't take death that hard. It's all going to be okay. Maybe some other Christians may take on this unfeeling attitude, this, this stoicism. Do you know what? Don't let it affect you. And, and but really what we need to do is 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 see how does Jesus respond to sufferers, to pain, to death? How did Jesus in the flesh, what did he do? What was he like? How did he act when he saw someone who he deeply personally knew and loved in the grave? And we may be shocked to see the response of Jesus. And as we study this text, we're going to walk through it verse by verse. We're going to see three three truths about Jesus in our pain and suffering. Now, remember, we find ourselves right in the middle of a story. If you weren't here um, when we picked up last, when we were teaching John last, uh, Jesus was, he got a message that his his friend who he loved, Lazarus, was very sick. And they were calling Jesus to come do something about it. And if you remember, Jesus does something surprising. He doesn't go right away. He waits a few more days. And he specifically says he's doing this on purpose for the glory of God. He's waiting until Lazarus is dead, until he's really dead, until he's four days in the grave dead, until his body smells dead. Jesus is waiting until then for him to show up and to display His glory. And then you remember Jesus first is met by Martha. If you remember, there was Martha and Mary, these two sisters and their brother Lazarus, and they had this amazing relationship, this friendship with Jesus. We we remember the story in Luke chapter 10 where Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha was serving and Martha was upset that she wasn't getting help from her sister. You, You remember these two sisters. Well, we see first Martha come running to meet Jesus. And they have this discussion about the resurrection and the life. And Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he asks if she believes. And she says, yes, Lord, you know that I believe. And and then we, we pick up our story today in verse 28. And we're gonna notice the first of the three truths about Jesus. And here's the truth. Jesus is our comfort. Jesus is our comfort. Now, we, we see some specifics of how Jesus is our comfort in our text. So let's start in verse 28. It says this, when she, that's Martha, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. Let me ask you, how does Jesus comfort How do we find practical comfort in Jesus? Well, let me say this. Jesus comforts through community. Do you know that? He comforts through community. It was through her sister Martha that Mary heard about Jesus, that Jesus was there, that Jesus was present, that Jesus was calling for her. I, I just experienced that through you. I experienced Un, a comfort I've never experienced through the community of the saints. Jesus is our comfort, but he uses saints. He uses community. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, God allowed me to suffer and then he comforted me so that I could go to others in their suffering and their pain and I could let them know Jesus is their comfort. That is one of the purposes of our pain, that we would be used by God to comfort others in their pain. Now, for some of us, this is a a no-brainer. This is a natural thing. For others like myself, it's honestly a, a bit of a discipline to let others into my life and my pain and to not be okay. But it's true of every human, we need community. Jesus comforts us through Others. But I want to, I want you to notice another thing about the comfort of Jesus. Jesus comforts us personally. Look again at verse 28. The teacher is here and what's he doing? He's calling for you. Jesus came calling for Mary. He was calling for an individual in her unique distress. And, and I want you to notice this. Before Jesus did anything about Mary's pain, before he addressed it, before he spoke to her about it, before he fixed it, he called Mary simply to himself. He's here. The teacher is here. Jesus comforts you personally in your pain. Guess where he is? He's there with you. He's calling to you. In fact, is it not true of our experience that it's often we can forget about Jesus until we're in pain? In fact, pain is often one of the incredible tools that God sovereignly uses to call us back to himself. That's amazing. He is here and he's calling. And then notice Her response in verse 29. Look at, look at what she does. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Man, do we have a model here in Mary? She rose quickly. She didn't delay. She canceled her plans. She stopped what she was doing and she went to Jesus, the moment when the spirit of God pricks us and woos us, would we be like Mary and go quickly to Jesus? He is calling to us. And I want us to notice a third way Jesus comforts us. He comforts us supremely. No, think about this. <coughs> Mary was grieving with friends and family in the comfort of her own home. She had people available for her practical needs, for her emotional needs, for her relational needs. She had the perfect environment for comfort. And she left it all to go to Jesus. She left her family, she left her friends, She left her, if she was having a, if she was overreacting and having a pity party, she left that too. She left it all and went quickly to Jesus. Because Jesus comforts supremely. There is no other comfort like Jesus. There is no other person who can comfort you like Jesus. There is no other substance that can comfort you like Jesus. There is no other experience that can comfort you like Jesus. No one else has the resources and the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the sympathy of Jesus. No one else comforts like Jesus and Mary knew that. And so she went and she found comfort in Christ. You may know these verses out of the Psalms, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 26. Listen, we know this. Our friends may fail, our health may fail, our jobs may fail, our church may fail, our spouse may fail. But God is the strength of our heart. That word strength is also translated rock. Our emotions are not consistent. Our even minds and our thoughts, are they may fail us. We may literally lose our reason. But God, but God is the strength of our heart. Our hope, our comfort in this life is not even in our ability to go to Jesus. Our strength, our comfort is in, in God's ability To hold us. He is a rock. He is unchanging. He supremely comforts. I want us also to notice Jesus comforts us publicly. When, when Mary found comfort in Jesus and when she rose quickly, it had an effect on people. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her saw Mary quickly rise and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Simply notice that others noticed Mary. They noticed her reaction in the midst of, of grief and sorrow and tears, something changed in Mary. And people took notice. In fact, they even followed her. And, and they didn't even know where they were going. They didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't personally find comfort in Christ. They didn't have hope in Christ. But she led them to Jesus as she went to Jesus. They noticed. They noticed something and, and the the response of Mary to publicly go to Jesus in, a, in, in this death, in this tragedy, listen, it led these Jews to then witness the greatest miracle of the ministry of Jesus because they simply noticed her faith. They noticed her actions to go to him. I'll be honest. Uh, in the hospital, when we were we were there for a few weeks with our daughter, and um, you know, you you just you want to have you're, you're an emotional wreck, and you know, you feel I I was like if anyone was rude to me at all, I was seriously like, are you serious right now? Do you know what I'm going through? And all to my shame, I I was rude to uh, too many people behind too many front desks about too many COVID rules and this that. And the, I was rude. And I, I was not in my best place. And, um, when I finally got into my daughter's room and there's a little desk and I sit on my Bible and I'm just trying to be with the Lord. And it just hit me like, what am I doing? I, for some people in this hospital, they may not see much of Christ. They may not have many opportunities to hear of Christ. And here I am as one of his sons. And here I want people to treat me a certain way and not treat me a certain way and be frustrated with them. And truly the spirit of God convicted me. What am I doing? This this may even be one of the chief reasons why my daughter is sick, that I would be here for the glory of God. Jesus allows our pain so that we could find comfort in him and have an effect on people. We do have hope. We don't grieve like the world grieves. It struck me, many people here, they don't have, when I was at that hospital, they don't have Jesus. They don't have hope. And here I am with hope. One of the purposes of our pain is that the world would notice us finding comfort in Jesus. And last, I want us to notice this last truth about the comfort of Jesus. This is cool. He comforts us uniquely uniquely. Look with me at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, one thing to notice, if you if you remember, Martha said actually the very same words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But it's also important to notice that these two sisters who are sharing the same experience and interacting with the same Jesus respond very differently and Jesus ministers to them very differently. Jesus comforts us uniquely. He knows how we're wired because he made us. He knows us. If you remember, Martha came to Jesus. And if you remember, there weren't tears. There was a theology discussion about the resurrection and the last times and what about this and that and the other. Some of us are built like Martha. And I just need to say, some of you Marys need to know that's okay. Some of us just need to talk it out. We may not cry. We may just need to think about it for a while. But then notice Mary. She doesn't say a word. And she collapses at Jesus' feet. And then she, she pleads, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, and Jesus actually responds with some truth to Martha. She, that's what she needed. And we don't see Jesus say another word to Mary. No words, but there were tears. And whether we're bent like Martha and we're asking these hard questions, or like Mary, and we don't even have words, and we just crumble at the feet of Jesus, it's important to know that he is a sufficient comforter for us all. He knows how to comfort us. He knows what we need. Now, before we wrap this first truth of Jesus as our comfort, I I want us to, to, to just take one really practical thing with us. Not only are we to personally find comfort in Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to be like Jesus. We are called to go to others in their distress, to visit our friends and our family members and those who are hurting. Romans 12:15 we are to weep with those who weep. And to some of our surprise, the Bible even says, it's good for us to weep with those who weep. Ecclesiastes 7.2, the wisest man who ever lived. Listen to what he said. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living lay it to heart. It is good for us to follow Christ into places of hurting and suffering and sorrow. And so we see this wonderful picture of Jesus as our comfort. Now, the next thing we're gonna see about Jesus here is this. Jesus is our Avenger. Jesus is our Avenger. Look with me in verses 33 and 34. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Look at this he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now you be notice in your footnote there under deeply moved, my Bible has the footnote or was indignant. Commentators and translators say you could use the word irate, furious, as angry as you can get when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews weeping, he was angry. he was angry now, some say, well, maybe it's why was he angry maybe he's he's angry at the unbelief of these Jews or at all the ruckus they're making, or maybe he's he's even angry at Mary and Martha because they don't have enough faith I mean, maybe, but but he's certainly seen unbelief before. He certainly interacted with Mary and Martha before and he didn't respond with this fury. And the key to why was Jesus angry is in verse 34, as we see what's on his mind. What does he ask about? What's, What's moving him? What does he say? Where have you laid him? Do you know what's on his mind? He is angry. Because he's looking at one of his great enemies. The Bible refers to the last enemy, death. Jesus is angry because he is face to face with an enemy. He's beholding the ravages of Satan and sin. And he sees its effect on people he knows and loves deeply. And he's angry about it. He is angry angry about death that his friend is laying in a grave. And we know in a few verses, he's about to go meet that enemy. And we know he's about to defeat that enemy. And we also know that that is just a small sign of what he's about to go do himself as he himself faces that enemy as he himself goes to the grave and as he himself defeats, destroys the power of death. Jesus is is like a man about to go to war here. As a a warrior is approaching his enemy, as they make eye contact, that's what's going on here. As, As David would have felt in his body As he's approaching Goliath. That's what Jesus is doing right here. As Samson with the jawbone of a donkey is looking at a thousand Philistines he's about to kill. Jesus in the purest, most holy, without sin sense is doing that to his enemies. He's angry about death. And he's preparing to conquer one of his hated foes. And this miracle is just a warning shot to the enemy. Just a warning shot. Hey, Satan. Hey, death. You don't have the final word. Watch what I can do. Watch what I can do. You know, we don't often think of Jesus that way as a warrior on our our behalf. But he is and he fights our enemies. And I'm just going to startle us by reading a passage out of Revelation chapter 20, when Jesus finally defeats Satan and death and those who have rebelled against him. Revelation 20, we'll read verse seven through 15. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus is an avenger and no enemy of his will conquer Every enemy of Jesus will be under his feet and eternally punished consciously in the lake of fire. Jesus is an avenger. But Christian, if you are in Christ, if you have repented and turned from your sin of unbelief, if you've been born again from on high, you are a son or daughter of Jesus. And he's not just an Avenger. He is your Avenger. He's your Avenger. You don't need to fear him because he's your Avenger. He has dealt with your sin on the cross. He has dealt with your eternal death on the cross. He has conquered your accuser on the cross And he has conquered death once and for all and will throw it, the death you should have lived into the lake of fire to be punished forever. And you will have eternal life. He is your avenger. Really practical for us here. Um, This scene of Jesus angry at a tomb is an example of what should make us angry. And the Bible says we are to be angry and and yet not sin. And and here in this text, we see the perfect example of that. Jesus who is angry, like really angry, and yet he is not sinning. He had control over his anger. One of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. But we see what should move us. Our, Our own sin should anger us. Satan and his fruit should anger us. Death should anger us. How does a Christian who's following Jesus interact and feel with pain and death? It should make us angry. This is wrong. An enemy has done this. And listen to this, this anger, this godly anger that Jesus displayed, this should fuel us to be like Jesus who assaulted his enemies. Listen, let your anger against the devil and sin fuel your evangelism. Man, he's, people are gonna die. People are gonna die without Jesus. That makes me angry. People need to know about Christ who has taken their sin and their death and defeated their enemy on the cross. It should fuel our opposition to evil in our day, such as the murder of the unborn in our communities. That should make us angry. The leading cause of death in our country is us murdering our own babies. That should make us, that should move us. And then we submit that to the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, give me self-control and let it move me and stir me. May it even move me to tears like it did to Jesus. We should let these enemies stir us to holy, sanctified, Jesus-exalting, gospel-proclaiming action. And so we see Jesus is our comforter. We see Jesus our avenger. And finally, in this text, we see Jesus is our suffering savior. Look with me at verses 35 to 37. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? We have in verse 35, the shortest verse in all the Bible. And yet it's a verse of infinite, depth, and wonder. We'll never get to the bottom of those two words. Jesus wept. As he beheld the ravages of death and those whom he personally loved affected, he wept. As he was angry about what was going on, he wept. It's one thing for Mary and Martha to weep. They don't know what's about to happen. It's another thing for the friends and family to weep as they're trying to express their, their sympathy and their gratitude with their family members. But it's another thing entirely for the son of God who knows all things, who knows he would soon reverse this death. The son of God who was perfect in every way full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit. It is another thing for Jesus to weep. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon said about these two words, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them even though he should apply the microscope of the most attentive consideration. Jesus wept. You know, this verse doesn't scandalize many of us like it should. You know, throughout history, most Israelites who read the Old Testament, throughout church history, most Christians who have read the Bible understood intuitively what is known as the the doctrine of God's immutability. There's a high view of God. It's this truth that God doesn't change, that God doesn't suffer. He doesn't fluctuate. He cannot be moved. He cannot be surprised. He is the great I am that I am. He's not the great I will be. He's the I am. He said in Malachi 3.6, for the Lord does not change. James 1.17 says he's the father of lights. Listen, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Unlike humanity, listen, God's emotions are perfect and constant. You hear that? They are perfect and constant. He's never surprised and then reacts with some emotion. He's never emotionally up or down, but he is every emotion constantly and perfectly. He is love. He is light. He is full of mercy and compassion and wrath and justice. Every attribute of God is his attribute all the time. If that blows your mind, it should blow your mind because it's not how we are. And we are not to make God in our image. The Bible reveals he is the rock. The world may change. Our emotions may change. Circumstances may change. But that is like waves dashing themselves against the rock. It is good news that he doesn't change because that means His character doesn't change. It means his promises to you don't change. It means his emotions towards you don't change. He's like the sun radiating every perfect emotion in full force at all times. That's who God is. Holy, holy, holy. And from our perspective, he, he seems to change. But the key there is that's our perspective. We're having a good day. We're like, man, God is so good. We're having a bad day. Man, God's angry with me. Well, listen, he didn't go up and down as you went up and down. You are interacting with a holy, perfect God in a different state. He is perfect. He is constant. That is why we can find hope and refuge in him. Now, listen, the church throughout all time has understood this doctrine. In recent times, we have been tempted to make God in our image, God feels like I feel He moves like I move, He changes like I change, He learns as I learn, he's surprised as I'm surprised, we just take it for granted that Jesus wept, of course he would weep but but let's think about this. Jesus is God, He is the Son of God, the full divine essence is in the second person of the Trinity, so what should utterly shock us is that Jesus, who is God, everything we just said about God, Jesus, who is perfect, that Jesus would suffer and weep. That's the crazy thing. That is the miracle of the incarnation. Jesus had to become a man, take on flesh to suffer as we suffered to die as we died, to weep as we wept. If he didn't have to, then he wouldn't have done it. The miracle of Christmas is that the perfect, immutable, unchanging God took on this changing, finite, suffering humanity. It's infinite. We can't even grasp it all the way. There's mystery there. He is fully God and fully man. He's truly God and truly man. How do those things interact? It's like the mysteries of the Trinity. We don't understand all of it, but we know it's real and true and amazing that this God who is perfect took on flesh and felt the way humans feel and cried the way humans cry. And one more truth should remi- we should remember as we think about this is in heaven, this is good news. There are no tears. There is no pain. Revelation 21, four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying or pain. Do you know why we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because it's better in heaven. That's why we pray that. Heaven's not full of a bunch of sad people or a sad God. It's full of joy where there are no more tears or suffering or pain. And yet still, Jesus wept. The son of God took on our nature, subjected himself to change and to pain And to death. And not only did he suffer as he wept in verse 35, as we know, Jesus had to take on humanity so he could suffer on the cross. This verse, Jesus wept, is a prologue. It's it's a it gets us ready for the the, the thought that Jesus would suffer and die, that he would weep again in the garden, that he would experience in his humanity what it's like to be despised and rejected by humans and to be forsaken by God. He took on flesh so that he could suffer in a way that no one else has ever suffered on the cross. The very wrath of God would come upon him Jesus wept and he knows, he knows, he knows what it's like to weep, to taste the salty tears in your mouth. And as we know, Jesus suffered on the cross and he rose again. Now there's an important truth here because Jesus rose again physically in his humanity. And he actually ascended in a human body. And theologians tell us that right now, he's still human. He'll be human forever. We'll see his scars. That right now at the right hand of God, the father, there's a human heartbeat. However that works, it's there. And, and Hebrews tells us that because Jesus is still human, he is still able to sympathize with us right now in our suffering. And in our pain, that one of the benefits of him taking on human flesh and suffering as we suffered and rising again is he is now our high priest, our mediator who intercedes for us, not just far off. He knows, he feels what it is to be a human. When he looks at you in your tears, he is fully able to say, son, daughter, I know what it's like and I am with you. He remembers what it was like, he knows, he's interceding, he feels for you. You know, that idea that God is so holy and immutable may be like frustrating, like, man, God's not like me. How can he know? Well, he took on flesh and he is next to the father and he is like you. He became like us under every respect except for sin. And right now he is interceding for us. And so that Jesus weeps can provide us now with comfort in our pain. The way he came to be with Mary in her pain, he comes to be with us in our pain. And we remember not only that he came to be with us and he knows what it's like, but he actually did something about it. He did something about it. Now to close, our text ends with these two verses and these two responses to Jesus, the tears of Jesus. We read this kind of sweet, sentimental, patronizing idea in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. That's true. That's nice. But, but they didn't grasp who Jesus was and the miracle that the son of God had tears running down his face. And then we read this, this this response of cynicism in verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And what remains for us, church, for you as an individual, is how will you respond in, in your own places of pain? Will you respond with cynicism? I mean, Jesus could have kept this from happening, Will you respond with this kind of nice sentimental, oh, Jesus, you know, isn't that nice? Will you respond with the trust and worship of Mary and Martha? Have you thrown yourself at the feet of Jesus in your pain? Do you bring your theology questions to Jesus and consider your thoughts up against his thoughts in his Word? Do you even know Jesus? Let me just say, if you've yet to trust in Jesus, there is comfort like you will never find anywhere else on offer to you today in the person of Jesus. Will you throw yourself in your pain at his feet? Church, Jesus is seated on his throne and by his spirit, he is present with us. He sees us, he sees you, he knows us. He knows your sorrows and your cares. And he is able to provide comfort for you. And he came to do something about it. He dealt with our enemies. So church, let me encourage us now, let us, even in worship, and as we then go on to take communion, let us right now have the, the heart of Mary and let us go to him. Jesus, who is like you? There is no one like you, truly God and truly man, and that you would take on humanity. That you would come and provide real comfort for us. That you would come and be moved to defeat our enemies. And Jesus, that you would ultimately on the cross take pain and suffering upon your own body, your own soul, and be offered as a sacrifice so that for those of us who would trust in you would have a living hope. This hope that holds behind the veil, that's in the the holy of holies, if so to speak, that we can approach you right now, God, as a throne of grace and mercy that we can find help in our time of need. Jesus, now help us to throw ourselves at your feet in worship, in trust, in adoration? Would we submit our minds and our thoughts to you, Jesus? Would we submit our hearts and our emotions to you, Jesus? Would we submit our lives and our actions and our sorrows and our griefs to you, Jesus? There's no better place for us than at the feet of Jesus. There's no better place for our sorrows and our pain and our doubts and our questions than at your feet, King Jesus. Spirit of God, would you move in our midst right now? Would we not be unfeeling? Would we not be like those cynical Jews who just looked on? Would we worship you now?